Good morning, everybody. I am excited um, to be able to share the the word with you this morning. Um, Before I do it, though, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful morning. Um, We've been able to gather together to sing praises to you. Lord, you are such a wonderful God, and it is so amazing to just be able to praise you. I pray that this morning, as we look at the promise of redemption, that um, we will be encouraged and strengthened in our faith, and that you will be glorified and honored. And these things I pray in your name. Amen. All of us enjoy stories. No matter how old we are, no matter what gender we are, no matter what we believe, no matter what we do for work, or where we came from as a background, it doesn't matter. We enjoy stories. And this is something that's been true for generations, all the way back. And this could be something as simple as kids wanting to hear a bedtime story. Or maybe it's when we go back to work tomorrow and we want to hear stories from our co-workers' weekends and things that they've done. We even spend a lot of our free time with stories. Think about it. Whether they're stories that we're reading in the newspaper or we're watching TV, those are stories. Movies, those are stories. Or if we like to spend our free time reading books, those often contain stories as well. All of us enjoy stories, but even better than just any old story is a good story. But what makes these stories good? Well, maybe the first thing is that they attach to our emotions. They make us happy. They make us laugh. They could be irony that we enjoy. They could draw sadness out of us or maybe even provoke anger. They could remind us of personal events that have happened in our own lives and connect us to the story. But I think the most important thing that makes a good story is that, in the end, good wins. Think about some of the famous stories of our time, whether it's Harry Potter or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, uh, all the new superhero movies that have been coming out. All of them, in the end, good wins. They're all good versus evil. And think about it. What if the next Avengers superhero movie that is supposed to come out All the superheroes lose. They were imprisoned and evil ends up winning and rules. What would we do? I mean, honestly, we'd probably expect a comeback story where good would come back and win. Because we know that in the end, good is supposed to win. So, so many different stories. How could we possibly choose one that would be the best story of all time? Well, today I'm going to argue that I know what the best story of all time is. And I think you do as well. And it has those elements. It draws emotions out of us. It reminds us of personal events that have happened. And most importantly, in the end, good wins. So what is this story? Well, it begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. This is God's story, where God is the author. This is a true historical story, which is found solely in Scripture. And the best part of this story is that we are in it right now. 
We are living in it. So to give us context for today's main text, which is Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So as I said, Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what this verse really does is it gives us an overview of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Most of us use computers on a daily basis, or at least once a week. Think if you were in your documents folder on your computer, and you had a file, and it said, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're going to double-click on that, and that's going to open up, and that is going to give you Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, to 2, verses 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. So, in that area then, you're going to unpack what, what creation is. So, how did God create the heavens and the earth? Well, if you read it, we would know that on day one, God creates light and separates it from darkness, and he also creates time. On day two, he separates the waters from the waters and creates the oceans and the sky. On day three, he brings forth dry land as well as plants on the earth. On day four, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. And on day five, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air are created. And his final day of creation is day six, where God creates first the animals and then mankind. Here we see that God has created everything with a clear design and a clear purpose. And then we have the seventh day where God rests. If we continue with this computer analogy, once you first opened up in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now you have another folder in there. And this is day six. So if you were to double click on day six, then you would get Genesis chapter two, verse four to the end of chapter two to to 24. So that section really is an in-depth view of the sixth day. So it's not like the story is being repeated over and over and over again. It's just giving you a more in-depth view. So in this area, we see further that man is separate from the rest of creation. Human beings are created in God's image, and they are to be God's special representatives here on the earth. And for this reason, he gives them jobs. He tells them to name the animals that they are to rule over the earth and to subdue it, and that they are to multiply. They are also given one commandment. Specifically, Adam is given this one commandment. And he is told that he is allowed to eat of any tree in the garden, whatever he wants, except for the tree of the knowledge of the good of evil, which is found in the midst of the garden. So how would we sum up these first two chapters then? Well, the best way to do it, it's simple. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So with that in mind, let us read Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard uh, the way to the tree of life. At the beginning here in chapter 3, we see that the story is continuing. We are introduced actually to a new character. Before, we had God, we had Adam, we had woman, and we had the animals. Those are the four characters that we had, although there are a lot of animals. Now, though, there's a new character added, and this is the serpent. And we are told right from the beginning that he is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. But who is he? Who is this serpent? Well, if we turn to Revelation 12, 9, um, we would see later on, that when God is pronouncing judgment, he speaks of this serpent again. And he says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. 
So, although Genesis chapter 3 isn't very specific on who this serpent is, we know from other texts that this is Satan himself. He is in the garden. And it's interesting that the other name he's also called in Revelations is the deceiver. And that's exactly what he is going to do here. Over the next few verses, he then deceives the woman to eat the fruit. And Adam is there with him and he's deceived as well. And the promise that they were told and took heart to and believed in is found in verse 5. When it says, when the serpent is talking to the woman, it says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to have that special ability to be able to distinguish things that are good and evil and not only know good like they did. But what's the result of this? Well, first they eat the fruit. Then they're in the garden. They hide themselves from the Lord because they're ashamed, because they're naked. They realize that. And then when God himself comes to the people in the garden that he has created, to the people that he has created, he, see, he, he, um, he approaches them and comes to talk to them. We see, when if we were to read Genesis 2, this creation on the day 6 a little more clearly, that Adam and Eve were placed in a world of yes, full of God's good gifts. Chapter 3, verse 2 testifies to this as well when Satan asks, can you eat of the trees? And, and it says, we may eat of the fruit of the garden, of the trees of the garden. They were placed, Adam and Eve were placed in a garden that was full of food it was full of work for them to do and it was full of protection this was a perfect place where god had given them so many gifts he had given them everything they would ever need so much yes and eventually as they multiplied and the numbers grew they would spread this garden and it would take over all the land on the earth this would be a worldwide garden that was the plan so God comes, he sees them in this garden, this huge world of yes, and they have disobeyed the one commandment they have been given. Only one. And because of this, punishment is brought as God promised it would be. So verses 14 to 19 in chapter 3 show the curses of the serpent, the woman, and then the man. And this order is, in a, is, is for a purpose. It's not a random order. When God creates everything, he puts it into a, an order of authority on purpose. So first we have God, then we have man, then we have woman, then we have animals. And it's important to note that, that man and woman are equal in value, but they're given distinct roles where man is the head. So that's the order. And Satan, when he goes and attacks he flips that. He puts the animal first as the serpent. Then he goes to the woman. Then he goes to the man. And then God is put at the bottom. So when God is addressing them with the punishment in verses 14 to 19, he's flipping that back around. First he takes Satan and he puts him in his place. Then he puts the woman in her place. Then he puts Adam in his place. 
establishing himself as the head of all. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 15 more specifically. And more specifically than that, the second half of that, where it says, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the turning point. In this verse, God is speaking specifically to the serpent, who we know is Satan, and he's cursing him. And this curse, however, is not something that should be dreaded. Instead, it is something that should be praised. And the reason for that is found in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What is being said in Verse 15 here is miraculous. Chapters 1 to 3, I'm going to argue that chapters 1 to 3, so just a small portion of your Bible, show God's creation and man's fall. So that's this. The rest of this shows God redeeming humanity and bringing glory to himself. This is the turning point. So in light of that, Adam last week um, did a really good overview of the whole scripture and how the process of events. So I would like to read this morning Luke chapter 3, verses 28 to 38. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there. And we're going to read this, and we are going to see how God worked through person after person to establish for himself and bring himself Jesus. And the line we trace, we start with Jesus we're going to go to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, down through Judah, um, to Jerusalem with David, and eventually to Jesus. So this line is traced backwards, but it goes from Jesus and then follows his adopted father, Joseph. So let's read this. And I want you to keep in mind how this, all these names, you're probably very familiar with them. That's because they're all the names of the Old Testament. We're following the storyline of the Old Testament here in reverse. So it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Malachi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathasus, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsai, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mathasus, the son of Simeon, the, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Reish, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shestil, the son of Nuri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Cosm, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matath, the son of Levi, the son of Simon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Milia, the son of Mena, the son of Manatha, the son of Nathan, 
And now you're going to start hearing names that you know because these are more prominent figures in the Old Testament we hear about. The son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Shurig, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphadax, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Machalili, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So in reverse order, we just went through all the figures of the Old Testament that got us from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to Jesus coming. So this verse is a huge turning point. Very, very important. So let's dive more deeply into this, and let's see how redemption is going to take place. There's going to be two parts to this redemption. So first, in the second half of the verse, it says, You, it says, um, the, your, you shall bruise his heel. This is referring to Jesus' death on the cross. And this is the time, if we go back to our story analogy, when it seems that all hope is lost. Doesn't every good superhero story or any good, good versus evil story have that? The good guy looks like he's losing always happens and if if we think more about this bruising of the heel we can maybe relate that to the bruising that would be on jesus's heel during the crucifixion the beatings that he took the whippings that he took and eventually the nails that would go through his legs and arms This image is literally Jesus being beaten. Think of that, the bruising that would happen. Another image we could have as well is Jesus literally stepping on the snake. And so if you imagine a snake with his mouth open and its teeth up in the air, and you come and you step on it, right? And the teeth go into the heel. And as that happens, it brings bruising and the venom would be injected which is death so during this bruising the devil is going to do his worst the most powerful thing that he can do and that is bring death jesus is killed and this death is substitutionary jesus is taking the place of us and the punishment that we were supposed to get because adam and eve ate the fruit that death would be brought He's taking that place, he's taking our sins, and he's going to substitute that for us. If we read Romans 3, 23 to 25, after the beginning of Romans really just hammers out how sinful we are, we see, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
by the killing of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the bruising of his heel. And again in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the substitution, we can think of it this way. Um, there was a, a snowbird, one of the teachings uh, a few years ago when I did the old school program, um, his daughter was learning about what Jesus did on the cross. And they finally explained it to her after a few years. And she came up with it and she explained it like this. And it's awesome. Jesus takes all of my badness and gives me all of his goodness. That's the substitution that's happening here. He's taking all of our badness and he's giving me all of our, his goodness. So all of our sin and giving me all of his righteousness. That's the substitution that happens here. So he's taking the place for us here through this death and by this substitution salvation is brought for us we are saved but there is a second part to this verse and it says he shall bruise your head well if we use the language of the niv or um, romans chapter 16 verse 20 bruise is used as crush so he will crush the head of Satan. That's a very strong imagery. So in the bruising of Jesus' heel, Satan is going to be crushed. This happens when Jesus rises again. Showing that he is more powerful than the curse of death that Satan had imposed upon people. Here he literally defeated Satan, taking Satan's most powerful weapon, which is death, and rendering it useless. Satan did the worst he possibly could to Jesus, and Jesus came back to life, and now what? Satan's useless. So Satan gave his all, but Jesus was better. Let's, Let's think about this a little more. For us, we're powerless against Satan when it comes to to death. We all die. We have not, there's no human way to escape death. We have not found a way with all our scientific research. Um, we're powerless. But Jesus rises again, showing that he is more powerful. And in Colossians 2.15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So through Christ's victory on the cross, salvation is also brought. These two things cannot be separated. The importance of substitution and the importance of Christ's victory. They both bring salvation. If we would have God come pay for sins, if Jesus came and he died on the cross and did that substitutionary death for us, and he, was, he, he got killed and he stayed dead, what would happen? We would still be under Satan. We would still have that power of his power of death would still be useful against us we wouldn't be anywhere right i mean if jesus who is god who's the author that created everything from the beginning is able to succumb to satan because he didn't rise again then what chance do we have it would all have been for nothing but instead we have salvation because jesus pays for the punishment 
that we are supposed to deserve by his death on the cross. And then he defeats Satan by his resurrection. He is crushed. And now those that are saved by Jesus, we don't have to worry because Satan's been defeated. There's nothing he can do to us. His most powerful weapon of death is useless. It's been taken away by Jesus, by by his victory. And Satan has no dominion over us anymore if we are saved. But why? Why would God do this? It is because he promised it to Adam in the garden. This is what Genesis 3.15 is promising. This coming Savior who will come take the place for our sins on the cross, then rise again and be victorious. That's the promise right here. It's beautiful. From the beginning, right after the fall, salvation was promised. God is saying that he is going to restore humans by taking the punishment for them for their sins and paying for it in full. And then by rising again, he's showing that he's victorious over Satan and all of his power. So let's look back at Genesis 3.15. And I want to look specifically at verse 20. Because something really, really cool happens here. So we see that um, the fall has happened. Sin has been introduced. They now, humans now know, or Adam and the woman now know good from evil. And, and the curse has just been brought to them. And at the end, in verse 19, um, Adam is told that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He's basically told, I mean, you, you and yourself have nothing special. The only reason you have purposes are special is because of me. But what does Adam do in verse 20? There's a, a special response. And it says in verse 20, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Think about that. And you might have noticed that I've been saying it, I've been referring to um, Eve, as we know, as woman. Up to this point, that was her name. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam named her woman because she was taken out of man. That was her name. But here, after the curse has been given, Adam changed her name changes it and not to not to something that means mother of all the dead no it's to mother of all the living adam recognizes that god was going to redeem his people and that and that and the mistake that him and the woman had made in the garden and for this reason he changes the woman's name to eve he believes Eve is now the mother of all living because Adam knows that from her, the seed is going to come, that we can trace that line again and go all the way down to Jesus. Adam believes that. And how can Adam call her that after, after this curse if he didn't? It, didn't make, it wouldn't make any sense. So Adam holds fast to the promise of God, trusting it, that he's going to be a redeemer who is victorious in the end. The rest of the chapter then describes how Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And from that point in, verse, in, in Genesis 4.1, the process of redemption is going to start all the way. For the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus is going to come 
and that we're waiting because he has won, but his victory, his final victory is coming. So although going through this story, we did miss a lot of detail. There's a lot of stories in here. This is clearly the best story that's ever happened. There can't be anything better. If you were to watch TV, I prefer TV over movies. I like, uh, I like the episode idea. Um, you could almost think of it as TV episodes in a way, where there's multiple episodes all stringed together, where each one has its own kind of um, story going on, but together it's part of a big meta-narrative. You know what I mean? You have, if, if you were to watch a TV show from season one, episode one, to season 10, episode 20, whatever, you see that there's a huge meta-narrative that's strung along through it, all the episodes, all the way through. But each one has its own story, all the way in it. And that is what's happening here. There's this huge meta-narrative of salvation that is going through the, all of the Bible, pointing to the cross, and there's little stories in between. So this story, is important for us to remember that we are living in it. This is a true and real story. It's historical and, and factual, not fiction. And it talks about things for us that have happened in the past. We're in this special area where some of the things have happened in the past. Jesus has come and died. He has had his head bruised. And he has crushed Satan's head. But it also contains things that are going to happen in the future with the second coming. So I encourage us today. What do we need to do? We need to be like Adam. We need to trust in the promises of God and realize that redemption has been purchased for us today. That by Jesus dying on the cross, he, sub- he took our substitution. He was a substitution for us, taking our sin. And that by him rising again, he is victorious over Satan. And by both of those things coming together, salvation is brought. And very soon Jesus is going to return And although he already has one, it's going to come to completion. And sin and death will be gone forever. Jesus has won. So let's praise him today, holding fast to this truth. Knowing that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that from the beginning you have had a plan to bring salvation. That this wasn't something that just kind of happened and came together eventually, but right when sin was introduced into the world, you you decided to come and bring salvation. You had a plan. I thank you, Lord, that you were faithful to this plan, that you held fast to it through all the years, and that you brought it to completion. Lord, uh, we pray uh, and and are excited for the day when you will return and when your victory will be shown to all, when all will see that you have beaten hell, you have beaten death, and you have beaten the grave. Lord, as we go this week and as we sing this final song, let us praise you knowing that you have won and you have saved us. In these things I pray. Amen.